9. As instantaneous, the prophecies of Van Rensburg were eagerly recalled, and it was remembered that he had foretold a day on which the independence of the Transvaal would be restored. Certain individuals could be seen daily cleaning their rifles and cartridges in order to be ready for the day. Within a week of the declaration of war between England and Germany the district was further profoundly stirred by the news now become generally known that a great meeting of local burghers was to be held at Turfontaine on the 15th of August, and that certain local officers were commandeering their burghers to come to this meeting armed and fully equipped for active service. The outbreak of the war in Europe suddenly brought the leech Tenberger's prophecy down to earth and crystallized the dream. The commandants were evidently as convinced that independence was at hand as the crowd. Careful inquiries by other local officers brought to light the following facts, Velt Cornet, i.e. Clausen, and Commandant F.G.A. Wolmarons of Ward under Hart's Revire had been commandeering their own burghers as well as their political friends since the first week of August to come to the meeting which was to be held at Turfontaine on the 15th. The instructions given to these men were that they were to come with rifle, horse, saddle and bridle, and as much ammunition and provisions as they could manage to bring. The meeting was to be addressed by General Delore, and it was generally believed that the assembled burghers would march on Pochefstroom immediately after the meeting. None doubted the truth of the Southeaster's prophecy now. The Western Transvaal took it for its guide with implicit confidence. The strange vision of the number 15, which had long been common knowledge, was now discussed with intense interest. The 15, it was said, signified the 15th of August, the day of the meeting. That would be the day which had been so long expected the day of liberation. Van Rensburg was now the oracle. His prophecies with regard to the Great War had been signally fulfilled. Germany was at grips with England, and her triumph was looked upon as inevitable. The day had arrived to strike a blow for their lost independence. Van Rensburg assured his following that the Union government was finished. Not a shot would be fired. The revolution would be complete and bloodless. Between the 10th and the 15th the plotters in Leechtenberg were actively preparing for the day. There is evidence that German secret agents were working in concert with them. When doubters asked how they could be so certain that the 15th signified a day of the month and of the month of August in particular they were scornfully illogically told that, in God's time a month sooner or later made no difference. Of course, General Delore was the storm center. He had been mentioned in the same vision with the number 15 and it was taken for granted that he would play the chief role in the Trefontaine meeting. Delore was the unquestioned ruler of the Western Transvaal. The report states, he possessed an unrivaled influence and was looked up to as the uncrowned king of the West. His attitude at the meeting would sway the mass of his adherents and decide the question of peace or war. Accordingly, General Louis Bothet, Premier of the South African Union, summoned General Delore to Pretoria some days before the meeting, and persuaded him to use his best efforts to allay excitement. On the 15th the meeting was held. The situation was a tense one. Not one of the burghers present doubted the outcome. Yet General Delore exhorted them to remain cool and calm. He urged them to await the turn of events in Europe. After his address a strange and unusual silence was observed, says the blue paper. A resolution was passed unanimously expressing complete confidence in the government to act in the best interests of South Africa in the present world crisis. The burghers appeared to have taken their leader's advice to heart, as they dispersed quietly to their homes. All danger of a rebellious movement had apparently been averted. The only difficulty was that the prophecy of Unikos was still standing. The fact that the uprising had failed did not seem in the least to invalidate the vision. If the mysterious number did not mean August 15th, 
then perhaps it did mean September 15th. Accordingly, preparations were laid for a rebellion for the latter date. The plot was engineered by Lieutenant Colonel Solomon G. Merritt's and General Christian Frederick Bayers. Merritt's is a brilliant though unlettered colonel who won distinction in the Boer War. While Bayers was the Commandant General of the South African Union forces, Bayers is dead now. Merritt's and some of the prominent men associated in the conspiracy are in prison awaiting trial. Bayers and Merritt's did not trust entirely to the prophecy of the southeaster of Lichtenberg. Merritt's had already obtained a guarantee from the authorities in German West Africa, with whom he had been in communication for some time, that in the event of Germany's victory the Free State and the Transvaal would be given their freedom. He had organized the Backveld Boers into a readiness to go over into German West Africa at a moment's notice. In the Free State, General DeWitt was ready to aid the rebellion, and the Western Transvaal, already excited, could easily be swung into a line. The regiments of the West were to concentrate at Pochefstrom early in September for their annual training. At that time the members of the government, among them General Delorey, who was a member of the Legislative Assembly, would be in Cape Town for the session of the Parliament. Everything made the 15th of September look like an auspicious date for the conspirators and those who believed in Van Rensburg. But General Delorey still remained the storm center. He was the factor which upset all plans. He was the most difficult obstacle. A large personality. His influence could never be discounted. If he could be induced to join the conspiracy the cause was as good as won. Should he oppose the movement it was lost. For neither Bears nor Major Kemp, a leader in his district in West Transvaal, could hope to do anything against General Delorey in the West. General Delorey believed in the Leechtenberg prophet, a strong man, of extraordinary force and intelligence. The whole course of his plans might be altered by a new vision from Van Rensburg. Bears knew this, says the report, and saw the way by which he should win the general to the conspiracy. There is evidence to prove that General Bears set himself systematically to a work in General Delorey's mind in order to induce him to join the conspiracy. General Delorey was known to hold strong religious views, which colored his whole outlook. The Southeaster, Van Rensburg, who was always full of religious talk, had in this way acquired a considerable amount of influence over General Delorey. There is the best of evidence General Bayers's own statement for the belief that he himself did not scruple to work on General Delorey's mind through his religious feelings. Just how Bayers accomplished this has not yet been revealed, but there was material enough to his hand. The news from Europe was disquieting. The German drive to Paris seemed irresistible. It looked as if in a week or two Germany would have the Allies at her mercy. The prophet saw visions in which 40.000 German soldiers were marching up and down the streets of London. He predicted significantly that the new South African state would have at its head a man who feared God. The government of Premier Bothy and General Smuts, the Minister of Finance and Defense, was finished. He had seen the English leaving the Transvaal and moving down toward Natal. When they had gone far away, a vulture flew from among them and returned to the Boers and settled down among them. That was Bothet. As for Smuts, he would flee desperately to England and would never be seen in South Africa again. Through it all ran the strange number 15. This was excellent material for the conspirators. But the problem was to get General Delorey away from the Parliament session at Cape Town and into the Pochefstrom camp at the psychological moment. Bayer sent a series of urgent telegrams to Cape Town hinting at important business. He emphasized the need for General Delorey's immediate presence in Pochefstrom. He had evidently not yet broached the conspiracy to the general. 
but hoped only to get him to the camp at the critical moment when his presence would prove the deciding factor. Everything in Pochevstrom was in readiness. The active citizen force concentrated here about 1.600 men was to start the uprising. The movement was to be promptly seconded throughout the western Transvaal. The Gearclerd was to be hoisted, and a march made on Pretoria, men and horses being commandeered on the way. This was to take place on Tuesday, the 15th. There was an attempt to line up the profit to add to the theatric effect, says the report. On the night of the 14th the prophet himself was specially sent for by motor car to be personally present on the 15th to witness the consummation of his prophecy. The conspirators hoped to profit by the impression he would undoubtedly make on those who still hesitated, and fortunately for them. However, the Southeaster refused to leave his home, saying that it was not yet clear to him that that was his path. The signal for the revolt was to be the arrival of General Bears and General Delaray in the Pochefstrom camp. The latter was returning from Cape Town via Kimberley, and was due to arrive in Pochefstrom on the 15th, but for some reason he chose to come back through the Free State, and by the 15th was only at Johannesburg. This upset plans. Bears had to act quickly. He had his chauffeur overhaul his motor car, equip it with new tubes and covers, in readiness for a long journey. In a short time the car was on its way to bring General Delore from Johannesburg to Pretoria, where Bears would meet him. There was no time to be lost. It was too late to stage the rebellion for the 15th, but there is arranged for it to be at 4 o'clock on the morning of Wednesday, the 16th. General Delore arrived in Pretoria. General Bears met him and asked him to go immediately with him to Pochefstrom. The car came within sight of Johannesburg. A police cordon had been thrown around the town for the purpose of capturing three desperados, known as the Foster Gang, who were trying to escape in a motor car. The police were instructed to stop all motors and to examine in particular any car containing three men. Bears's car held three men. It was racing at high speed. It was, of course, challenged by the police and ordered to stop. But Bears knew nothing of the Foster Gang and the reason for the police cordon. Keyed up to the highest pitch of nervous tension, his immediate conclusion was that his plot had been discovered and that the police were after him. He believed he was trapped. Meanwhile, Major Kemp at Pochefstrom grew more and more anxious as the hours slipped by. Midnight came, and no news of the two generals. About three o'clock in the morning, says the report, an officer sharing the tent of a lieutenant colonel by the name of Cock, who was Kemp's confidant, was awakened by the entrance of a man. It proved to be Major Kemp. He leaned over Cock's bed and whispered something in his ear. Cock, in a profoundly startled voice, exclaimed, Oh, God! Kemp laughed immediately, and Cock then whispered to his friend, General Delore is due Jeskiot. General Delore has been shot dead. The effect of this news on South Africa can be imagined. The whole country was aflame. This was what the number 15 meant. The general had indeed returned home without his hat, followed by a carriage full of flowers. Report ran through every town that General Delore had been deliberately assassinated by the government. As a matter of fact, the report states that the shooting was purely accidental, done by the police under the belief that this motor car which would not halt at their command contained the Foster Gang. Bears exhibited the motor car everywhere, arousing sentiment to the highest pitch. The rest was easy. The rank and file, at least, now believed firmly in the prophet. He had always said that General Botha would offer no resistance, that the revolution would be bloodless and thousands went over to the cause led by Merritt's and Bears in this belief. 
but it was not until October 12th that martial law was proclaimed in South Africa. The rebellion had begun. The bells of Berlin from Bunch of London, which are said to be rung by order occasionally to announce some supposed German victory. The bells of Berlin. How they hearten the Hanno. Dingle dawn bangle ding dongle ding dee. No matter what devil's own work has been done they chime a loud chant of approval. Each one. Till the people feel sure of their place in the sun oh. Dangle ding dongle dong dingle ding dee. If Hindenburg kessels an enemy squad oh. Dingle dong bangle ding dongle ding dee. The bells all announce that the alien sod is damp with the death of some thousand men odd. Till the populace smiles with a gratified nod oh. Dangle ding dongle dong dingle ding dee. If Turpitz behaves like a brute on the brino. Dingle dong bangle ding dongle ding dee. The bells with a clash and a clamor combine to hint that the hated ones on the decline. And the city gulps down the good tidings like wine. Oh. Dangle ding dongle dong dingle ding dee. The bells of Berlin. Are they cracked through and through? Oh. Dingle dong bangle ding dongle ding dee. Or death to the discord like Germany. Too. For whether their changes be many or few. The worst of them is that they never ring true. Oh. Dangle ding dongle dong dingle ding dee. Warfare and British Labor by Earl Kitchener, England's Secretary of State for War in his speech delivered in the House of Lords on March 15, 1915, Earl Kitchener calls upon the whole nation to work, not only in supplying the manhood of the country to serve in the ranks, but in supplying the necessary arms, ammunition, and equipment for successful operations in various parts of the world. For many weeks only trench fighting has been possible owing to the climatic conditions and waterlogged state of the ground. During this period of apparent inaction, it must not be forgotten that our troops have had to exercise the utmost individual vigilance and resource, and, owing to the proximity of the enemy's lines, a great strain has been imposed upon them. Prolonged warfare of this sort might be expected to affect the morale of an army, but the traditional qualities of patience, good temper, and determination had maintained our men, though highly tried, in a condition ready to act with all the initiative and courage required when the moment for an advance arrived. The recently published accounts of the fighting in France had enabled us to appreciate how successfully our troops have taken the offensive. The German troops, notwithstanding their carefully prepared and strongly entrenched positions, have been driven back for a considerable distance and the villages of Neuchapel and Lepinet have been captured and held by our army with heavy losses to the enemy. In these operations our Indian troops took a prominent part and displayed fine fighting qualities. I will in this connection read a telegram I have received from Sir John French. Please transmit following message to Viceroy India. I am glad to be able to inform Your Excellency that the Indian troops under General Sir James Wilcox fought with great gallantry and marked success in the capture of New Chapel and subsequent fighting which took place on the 10th, 11th, 12th and 13th of this month. The fighting was very severe and the losses heavy, but nothing daunted them. Their tenacity, courage and endurance were admirable and worthy of the best traditions of the soldiers of India. I should like also to mention that the Canadian division showed their mettle and have received the warm commendation of Sir John French for the high spirit and bravery with which they have performed their part. Our casualties during the three days fighting, though probably severe, are not nearly so heavy as those suffered by the enemy, from whom a large number of prisoners have been taken. Since I last spoke in this house substantial reinforcements have been sent to France. They include the Canadian Division, the North Midland Division, and the 2nd London Division, besides other units. These are the first complete divisions of the territorial force to go to France. 
where I am sure they will do credit to themselves and sustain the high reputation which the territorials have already won for themselves there. The health of the troops has been remarkably good, and their freedom from enteric fever and from the usual diseases incidental to field operations is a striking testimony to the value of inoculation and to the advice and skill of the Royal Army Medical Corps and its auxiliary organizations. The French Army, except for a slight withdrawal at Soissons, owing to their reinforcements being cut off by the swollen state of the Aisne River, had made further important progress at various points on the long line they hold, especially in Champagne. Association with both our lives in the Western Theater has only deepened our admiration of their resolute tenacity and fighting qualities. In the Eastern Theater the violent German attacks on Warsaw have failed in their purpose, and a considerable concentration of German troops to attack the Russian positions in East Prussia, after causing a retirement are now either well held or are being driven back. In the Caucasus fresh defeats have been inflicted by the Russians on the Turks, and the latter had also been repulsed by our forces in Egypt when they attempted to attack the Suez Canal. The operations now proceeding against the Dardanelles show the great power of the Allied fleets, and, although at the present stage I can say no more than what is given in the public press on the subject, your lordships may rest assured that the matter is well in hand. The work of supplying and equipping new armies depends largely on our ability to obtain the war material required. Our demands on the industries concerned with the manufacture of munitions of war in this country had naturally been very great, and had necessitated that they and other ancillary trades should work at the highest possible pressure. The armament firms have promptly responded to our appeal, and had undertaken orders of vast magnitude. The great majority also of the employees have loyally risen to the occasion and have worked, and are working, overtime and on night shifts in all the various workshops and factories in the country. Notwithstanding these efforts to meet our requirements, we have unfortunately found that the output is not only not equal to our necessities, but does not fulfill our expectations, for a very large number of our orders have not been completed by the dates on which they were promised. The progress in equipping our new armies and also in supplying the necessary war material for our forces in the field, has been seriously hampered by the failure to obtain sufficient labor, and by delays in the production of the necessary plant, largely due to the enormous demands not only of ourselves, but of our allies, while the workmen generally, as I have said, have worked loyally and well, there has, I regret to say, been instances where absence, irregular timekeeping, and slack work have led to a marked diminution in the output of our factories. In some cases the temptations of drink account for this failure to work up to the high standard expected. It has been brought to my notice on more than one occasion that the restrictions of trade unions had undoubtedly added to our difficulties, not so much in obtaining sufficient labor, as in making the best use of that labor. I am confident, however, that the seriousness of the position as regards our supplies has only to be mentioned and all concerned will agree to away for the period of the war any of those restrictions which prevent in the very slightest degree our utilizing all the labor available to the fullest extent that is possible. I cannot too earnestly point out that, unless the whole nation works with us and for us, not only in supplying the manhood of the country to serve in our ranks, but also in supplying the necessary arms, ammunition, and equipment. Successful operations in the various parts of the world in which we are engaged will be very seriously hampered and delayed. I have heard rumors that the workmen in some factories have an idea that the war is going so well that there is no necessity for them to work their hardest, 
I can only say that the supply of war material at the present moment and for the next two or three months is causing me very serious anxiety, and I wish all those engaged in the manufacture and supply of these stores to realize that it is absolutely essential not only that the arrears in the deliveries of our munitions of war should be wiped off, but that the output of every round of ammunition is of the utmost importance, and has a large influence on our operations in the field. The bill which my noble friend is about to place before the House as an amendment to the Defense of the Realm Act is calculated to rectify the state of things as far as it is possible, and, in my opinion, it is imperatively necessary, in such a large manufacturing country as our own the enormous output of what we require to place our troops in the field thoroughly equipped and found with ammunition is undoubtedly possible, but this output can only be obtained by a careful and deliberate organization for developing the resources of the country so as to enable each competent workman to utilize in the most full manner possible all his ability and energy in the common object which we all have in view which is the successful prosecution and victorious termination of this war. Cheers. I feel sure that there is no business or manufacturing firm in this country that will object for one moment to any delay or loss caused in the product of their particular industry when they feel that they and their men are taking part with us in maintaining the soldiers, in the field with those necessaries without which they cannot fight. As I have said, the regular armament firms have taken on enormous contracts vastly in excess of their ordinary engagements in normal times of peace. We have also spread orders both in the form of direct contracts and subcontracts over a large number of subsidiary firms not accustomed in peacetime to this class of manufacture. It will, I am sure, be readily understood that, when new plant is available for the production of war material, those firms that are not now so engaged should release from their own work the labor necessary to keep the machinery fully occupied on the production for which it is being laid down, as well as to supply sufficient labor to keep working at full power the whole of the machinery which we now have. I hope that this result will be attained under the provisions of the bill now about to be placed before you. Labor may very rightly ask that their patriotic work should not be used to inflate the profits of the directors and shareholders of the various great industrial and armament firms, and we are therefore arranging a system under which the important armament firms will come under government control, and we hope that workmen who work regularly by keeping good time shall reap some of the benefits which the war automatically confers on these great companies. I feel strongly that the men working long hours in the shops by day and by night, week in and week out, are doing their duty for their kin and country in a like manner with those who have joined the army for active service in the field. Cheers. They are thus taking their part in the war and displaying the patriotism that has been so manifestly shown by the nation in all ranks. And I am glad to be able to state that His Majesty has approved that where service in this great work of supplying the munitions of war has been thoroughly, loyally and continuously rendered. The award of a medal will be granted on the successful termination of the war. Cheers. Saviors of Europe by René Bazin from King Albert's book. I believe that King Albert and Belgium, in sacrificing themselves as they have done for right, have saved Europe. I believe that in order to act with such decision it was essential to have a king, that is to say, a leader responsible to history, of an old and proved stock. I believe that for such action a Christian nation was essential, a nation capable of understanding, of accepting, and of enduring the ordeal. I believe that the first duty of the Allies will be to restore the Kingdom of Belgium, and that the example shown by the King and his people will be exalted in all civilized countries as long as the world reads history. Britain's Peril of Strikes and Drink by David Lloyd George, Chancellor of the Exchequer. 
the gravity of labor disputes in the present time of national danger was dealt with by Mr. Lloyd George in a speech to his constituents at Bangor on February 28, 1915, special reference being made to the Clyde strike. He declared that compulsory arbitration in wartime was imperative, as it was intolerable that the lives of Britons should be imperiled for a matter of a farthing an hour. This was essentially an engineer's war, for equipment was even more needed than men. Mr. Lloyd George went on to comment on the adverse effect of drinking upon production, and added, We have great powers to deal with drink, and we shall use them. I have promised for some time to address a meeting at Bangor. I have been enabled to do so because ministers of the Crown have been working time and overtime, and I am sorry to say that we are not even able to make the best of the day of rest. The urgency is so great. The pressure is so severe. I had something to say today. Otherwise I should not have been here, and I had something to say that required stating at once. This is the only day I had to spare. It is no fault of mine. It is because we are entirely absorbed in the terrible task which has been cast upon our shoulders. I happened to have met on Friday morning, before I decided to come down here, one of the most eminent Scottish divines, a great and old friend of mine, Dr. White of Edinburgh. We were discussing what I have got to say today. I remarked to him, I have only one day on which to say it, and as that is Sunday afternoon I am very much afraid my constituents won't listen to me. He replied, if they won't have you, come to Scotland, and we will give you the best Sunday afternoon meeting you ever had, but I thought I would try Wales first. Cheers. He told me that in the shorter catechism you are allowed to do works of charity and necessity, and those who tell me that this is not work of necessity do not know the need, the dire need of their country at this hour, at this moment there are Welshmen in the trenches of France facing cannon and death, the hammering of forges today is ringing down the church bells from one end of Europe to the other, when I know these things are going on now on Sunday as well as the weekdays I am not the hypocrite to say, I will save my own soul by not talking about them on Sundays, cheers, do we understand the necessity, do we realize it, Belgium, once comfortably well to do, is now waste and weeping, and her children are living on the bread of charity sent them by neighbors far and near, and France the German army, like a wild beast, has fastened its claws deep into her soil, and every effort to drag them out rends and tears the living flesh of that beautiful land, the beast of prey has not leaked to our shores not a hair of Britain's head has been touched by him, why, because of the vigilant watchdog that patrols the deep for us, and that is my complaint against the British Navy. It does not enable us to realize that Britain at the present moment is waging the most serious war it has ever been engaged in. We do not understand it. A few weeks ago I visited France. We had a conference of the ministers of finance of Russia, France, Great Britain, and Belgium. Paris is a changed city. Her gaiety, her vivacity, is gone. You can see in the faces of every man there, and of every woman, that they know their country is in the grip of grim tragedy. They are resolved to overcome it confident that they will overcome it, but only through a long agony. No visitor to our shores would realize that we are engaged in exactly the same conflict, and that on the stricken fields of the continent and along the broads and the narrows of the seas that encircle our islands is now being determined, not merely the fate of the British Empire, but the destiny of the human race for generations to come. Cheers. We are conducting a war as if there was no war. I have never been doubtful about the result of the war. Cheers and I will give you my reasons by and by, nor have I been doubtful, I am sorry to say, 
about the length of the war and its seriousness. In all wars nations are apt to minimize their dangers and the duration. Men, after all, see the power of their own country, they cannot visualize the power of the enemy. I have been accounted as a pessimist among my friends in thinking the war would not be over before Christmas. I have always been convinced that the result is inevitably a triumph for this country. I have also been convinced that that result will not be secured without a prolonged struggle. I will tell you why. I shall do so not in order to indulge in vain and idle surmises as to the duration of the war, but in order to bring home to my countrymen what they are confronted with, so as to ensure that they will leave nothing which is at their command and done in order, not merely to secure a triumph, but to secure it at the speediest possible moment. It is in their power to do so. It is also in their power, by neglect, by sloth, by heedlessness, to prolong their country's agony, and maybe to endanger at least the completeness of its triumphs. This is what I have come to talk to you about this afternoon, for it is a work of urgent necessity in the cause of human freedom, and I mock.